This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and evidence for progress in the sector. With your host, Studiosity's founder and president of Friends of Libraries Australia, Jack Goodman. Welcome. Well, my guest today is Martin Betts. He is the co-founder of HEDEX and a former senior executive at many universities in Australia. Um, I'd like to uh, welcome you, Martin, to our podcast. Very nice to be here, Jack, and lovely to see the roles reversed from when you joined me on the HEDEX podcast a little while ago. Great to reciprocate. It is is good fun, and and I think these conversations are, are, are not just enjoyable, but incredibly valuable for all of us to uh, crystallize our thinking and, and, and sharpen our understanding and share ideas. Um, so I, I'm very grateful as someone who is, um, has been in the sector and is now sort of working in it, around it, and uh, for it, um, bringing your enormous years, decades of experience, something that I do not have and the depth of understanding that you have of how universities work from the inside out as you know, I, I, I really only understand them from the outside looking in. So hopefully we can um, have a discussion today. Let's talk a little bit about um, the half of, this, of the university mission that's really focused on the teaching and learning component. And the, the, the spark for this really was the release of the uh, 2021 uh, quilt data that um, was published uh, a little belatedly, I think in August or September. And I think as, as you know, and, and um, others do, that, you know, I'm particularly interested in um, from my vantage point, very much focused on, on the student experience and making sure that, that uh, students um, are getting the kinds of teaching and learning uh, experiences and outcomes that, that uh, our universities want for them and, of course, that our nation needs for them. So I wonder if you just had any sort of opening sort of reflections about how Quilt works and, and what it's used for and, and, and sort of what your, your, your view of it is. Sure, it's um, it is important that data, and we were all um anxiously and eagerly, um, some more eagerly than others, I, I guess, awaiting the the twenty twenty one data coming out so late as it did in twenty twenty two. Um, I think it's come out later in the year than than the year before, and the twenty twenty data was always going to be um interesting for us at the first year of, of a pandemic i dare say next year when when the 2022 data comes out it will be another big reality check and and um, milestone in the transitions that the sector is going through that every university is going through that its leaders and its students are going through i mean if i start if i start with 2020 data before coming to what we learned in august and september this year i mean clearly there was a, a big shock in the big fall, in the measures of satisfaction, engagement, um, and all the rest of it in 2020, we would have expected that. I mean, we we did have wonderful responses by staff and by institutions and by leaders. I know they've been referred to as the hero, <clears throat> as the heroes of the hour, and um, Jane Den Hollander, for me, famously called them the the gold at the base of the pyramid at the time in in making fantastic efforts to 
to turn things around. And, and I think it's the case that some were better prepared than others. Individual individual academics were better prepared than others by what they'd done before. Individual universities were better prepared than others with where their commitments had been. But another, an, another for me, notable reference to the 2020 experience and response was, was Sally Kift, who um, referred to a US study that had coined the term panic Goji instead of yeah. pedagogy. You may be familiar with that one, Jack. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of there was a lot of response rather than measured um, reactions to, or, or maybe I should call them reactions rather than measured responses to the challenge at that time. So the 2021 data coming a year later, I think there's been lots of hope that the big falls in the primary quilt measures would see recoveries. Um, and there have been some partial recoveries, but they're they're not great. They're not substantial. It's relatively quiet. We we hear a lot about good good scores in our universities on rankings and measures of the like when we want to tell a story about them. Yeah, this is one that we haven't told so much, and I think we need to shine a light on a little bit more. And um. Yeah, the, the 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 2021 data is a bit of an improvement on the big shock of 2020, but there's still yeah. a long way to go to get back to where we were, even assuming that where we were is where we should have been in the first place. Yeah, I I, I agree with you in, in terms of that analysis. I think 2020 was an was an understandable shock, and we all expected that. And and your point about some universities being better prepared than others, as in having more of a digital presence running up to 2020. So they had tools in place that they could use, whereas some of the um, really more purely campus-focused institutions did have you know, subscriptions and technologies, but really didn't have an integrated approach to digital delivery that made it particularly easy. So they really did slap together solutions. And, and, and I think Jane Denhollander is exactly right. It was a heroic effort by, by teaching staff, but it was hardly ideal circumstances. It was sort of an Apollo 13 rescue mission. You don't really plan for it. Um, but when you have no other choice, it's amazing how creative people can be. Um, 2021, you're right. There's, there's, there is a, there's a, there's a, a, you know, an incremental recovery um, in some of the scores, but you got to remember also that 2021 was probably a worse experience pandemic wise in New South Wales than 2020 was. 2020 and 2021 were, were really terrible in, in uh, Victoria. Those are the two biggest states. And so if you look at the data for the, the universities in, in New South Wales, I don't think students had a particularly enjoyable time with those lockdowns and, and the, the, um, you know, the, 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 the sort of pulsating nature of the ongoing pandemic and the impact that had on, on life. And there is, you know, there is this Wall Street expression, you know, I'm kind of fond of these, uh, these expressions, I think I quoted Warren Buffett last time, but there is this expression when, when, when some, what well, usually it refers to a stock, a company stock price, but when a stock, you know, has a collapse and we sort of had a collapse of our data, our student experience data in one year, and then it, and then it comes back up. There's always that question that stock traders have, is that a, is this a genuine recovery or is it what they call a dead cat bounce as in, you know, a cat bouncing off of the the pavement. Um, I don't think this is a dead cat bounce, but I but I think it's wrong to interpret one one year of data as as a trend line also. So we really will have to see. And, and of course, the you know the, the the upside of this data is that it's incredibly um, thorough. The downside is we only get it as a snapshot once a year, so it's really hard to know 
what's moving the data year on year as well. Yeah, for sure. And um, look, that 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 data is also showing. You've you've commented there on between twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one the differences of experiences more generally in the major states of Australia. I think we've also seen a light shone on how different universities, not only in terms of their individual preparedness for digital delivery, but the difference between big metropolitan universities in all of our states compared with smaller regional universities and the the difference between our longest established and highest ranked research universities. Yeah. Um, and the promises that they are able, that they have been making of expectations to students by virtue of those rankings. Right. I, I, I think a light's getting shone here for all of our universities that's playing out differently in metropolitans and the regionals and between genres and the extent to which the student experience is meeting the expectation that we've built up in the past. Yeah. And that that's actually creating quite different needs for reactions from all of our universities now in terms of how they're they're going to manage the extent of the bounce the fall that they've had and the bounce that they need to make from it i think right yeah i think that's that is a really good point i mean one of the places that i you know i keep i can't quite draw my eyes away from when i look through the data um is there's this there's this component of it which is the learner engagement data which is really about student sense of belonging it really is the the you know, at the core of how do students feel about their relationship with their institution. And, and it's based on about five questions that are largely around whether you've had any interactions with uh, peers, either face-to-face on campus in your course or just at the university or online. And there are a few other questions around that. But those those learner engagement numbers, just if you go all the way back to the beginning of Quilt, which is 2011, 2012, they really just hovered around the high 50s to low 60s, um, which meant that, you know, 58 to 60% of students had a positive learner engagement score, um, but roughly 40% didn't. And then, of course, um, you know, last year and the year before, those numbers dropped down into the, 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 the mid 40s. Um, now they're still below 50%. So, you know, technically more than half of students don't have a strong sense of belonging, at least as of 2021. Um, new university. And, and that, from my perspective, I look at that and I think, gee, that, that, that is really the, you know, a concerning, a concerning place for the, the sector to be because it's, it's 800,000 students that we're talking about. That's roughly half of the, you know, the, the, the student cohort. And, and we really need them to feel like they are wanted and loved and, and, and supported. And clearly right now we've had a, you know, this this jolt to the system, but that that's really impacted that. But but even before the the pandemic, it, it it wasn't great. The numbers weren't what they probably should be, or what a you know what a um you know best practice might look like. Yeah, well, um, twenty eleven is an interesting point to go back to. I I, I found myself um, having a conversation just recently talking about variety of some of the data in, in this area of learner engagement. I had a conversation with Australia's University Teacher of the Year in 2020. is an associate professor at UQ called Jack Wang, mm-hmm. um, a biologist. I don't know if you've come across him. And he's made a, a lovely little video of looking back over the last 20 years rather than the last last 10 years. Okay. Of, 
Australian university teaching and he calls these seven phases that we've gone through from when he first was a student himself or coming out of being a student and joining as a postdoc UQ, the, the sort of chalk and talk period as it was that got quickly followed by the PowerPoint or as it soon got called the death by PowerPoint experience, the mm-hmm. emergence of LMSs, the emergence of automatic lecture capture and brought that all the way through um, the sort of COVID Zoom practices that we've had in the period that we're talking about called data here um, with, with a critical and a challenging conversation as part of his video about the extent to which students are engaged to a point where he calls the current phase one of a no man's land. Really? That's fascinating. And what, 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 in what way is it a no man's land? Well, he, he describes it as, um, and, and it, I, indeed, David Kellerman, you may know. Yeah, David I remember Kellerman, him. Sure. Yeah. University I think you interviewed him. Yeah, I did. And, and he um, commented on Jack's video himself and has commented recently on the phenomena that we're describing as learning taking place in absentia. I mean, we, we've, we've got this, for me, ironic set of pictures going on of we, we, the, there's a lot in the sector that wish we were engaging students in vibrant campuses like the image that we have of what universities should be. And mm-hmm. we've, we've had the last couple of O weeks in the semesters that have started this year of celebrating that they're back. It's, it's, um, it's back to making great use of our real estate, our learning assets and our programs as they were. We, we'd all wish that it was like that gets contrasted at the end of the semester with these, I'm sure you've seen them, yeah. lecturers taking pictures of e- empty lecture theatres. Yeah. With a, a staff member in the front talking to a camera in a room that might have one or two students in it at best. Right. And the learning taking place in absentia. And um, that, that's what Jack's referring to, the, the no man's land. And I, I found a study, I don't know if you're familiar with it, it's uh, a journal study coming out of UCLA from earlier this year. Yeah, tell us about um, it. Yeah, so a group, a group of academics there who've observed that, um, that in their understanding from surveying students, 85% of their students are watching lectures in absentia, mm-hmm. but they're speeding them up. Maybe um, that's not a surprise to, to anybody. Um, and so they conducted some, some research studies of groups of UCLA students. They experimented with testing the comprehension of classroom delivery. If people watched their lectures or classes at normal speed, at one and a half times speed and at twice speed. Yep. And found insignificant differences in student comprehension. Um, yeah. Now, these are students that aren't engaging. These aren't learners engaging with academics. They're watching content. Yep. Um, and, I've, you know, I've, I've quizzed my own son about this. My son's a graduate of a GO8 university for a couple of years ago. He, he tells me that he's researched it and found that 1.6 times normal speed is the optimum for him. Right. Um, <laughs> the, the voice yeah. doesn't quite get so high pitched that it's annoying, but you can still get through. He, he talked about, you know, swap vac just became the time when you could knock out ni- nine lectures one after the other at one and a half or 1.6 normal speeds yep. and free yourself up from the need to attend regularly and get engaged with learning at times mm-hmm. that universities were making it available to you. Yeah. Now, yeah. if 85% of UCLA students are doing that, I dare say mo- many Australian students are doing that. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, there's going to be negligible difference. 
to hear. For sure, for sure. And, and, and if that's how you're, as a student, choosing to engage with the learning that's being offered to you by a university, the opportunity, it surprises me that if that's the case, we have as many as 50% or close to 50% feeling that they are engaged because it's yeah. the, the no man's land that Jack's referring to is, is the, the need for us to find different ways using technology, using new pedagogy of making provision and engaging learners in environments where the empty lecture theatre and recorded lectures are watched back synchronously or asynchronously is yeah. is poorly equipped for what students are choosing to do. Yeah, yeah. I'll make a comment and then I'm going to ask you a question, um, Martin. Um, we've, well, you've been in the sector for decades, your entire career. Most of my professional career has been in education technology and certainly the last 20 years in, 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 in Australia, working in and around higher education. Um, I had this conversation with a Dean of Science at a university in Sydney at least a dozen years ago. And it was maybe, well, let's say 2011, I think so, 11 years ago. Um, it was just around the time that uh, we were starting to see the idea of the, the MOOC come along or early people publishing, professors publishing their own lectures. And there was a few outliers. These were people who were really into technology. Um, and there were some f quite famous uh, professors putting up really impressive content. Uh, and I just recall one being um, an introductory physics course being taught by a very experienced and incredibly entertaining professor from MIT who just took his lectures and published them online. And this university in Sydney, this uh, dean had said, yeah, we're, we're noticing that we have almost no attendance after week one or week two of our lectures in this first year physics class in our, in our in our engineering school. And I said, well, do you have any idea why that is? He said, well, I didn't. So I went and started asking the students who were on, you know, on campus, what are you doing instead? Are you, what have you found? Or are you just, you know, what's wrong with our lectures? And they said, oh, look, professor, we're watching this guy from MIT. And, and, I, and, and he said, oh, I went and looked it up and I watched the lectures. And I said, you know, they're terrific. They're way better than what we do. <laughs> and I said, well, what does that make you think? And he said, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what we should do about that. I'll, you know, we'll, we'll, sort of, we'll sort of sit on that. And so that was 11 years ago. I, I, I would just posit that this has been going on for a long time. It's not just the pandemic that, that brought this out. Um, YouTube's had a feature of speeding up audio. Podcasts are doing it all the time. Um, and if you listen to a lot of content, you can, you know, depending on how it's delivered, you can accelerate it and you can increase your, comp your, your comprehension or, or certainly reduce the amount of time it takes to absorb information. It doesn't always work if content is really complex, deep. You might have to pause, reflect, rewind, but they're probably doing all that as well. Um, it also depends on whether they're multitasking, in which case I think speeding anything up is ridiculous and probably even just watching at normal speed is ridiculous. But my question for you would be, so that's just to say, I think this has been happening for many, many years. Um, this isn't new, but, um, but what I'm wondering is, is, is some of this or a lot of this about us coming to a point in time where, we, you know, because of the nature of technology, because of where we are in the world and where students are and wanting to be that we really need to start rethinking and in investing much more heavily in how we re reimagine the teaching and learning experience and that that's just part of the sort of a systemic maybe underinvestment or overweighting of the research mission and underweighting 
of the teaching and learning side of the university mission. Um, I'm absolutely sure you're right about that. I mean, um, that very interesting, your anecdote about 12 years ago. Um, I mean, I, I can support the, the view that you're promoting there. I, I can remember being, I, I've been about 20, 20 years working in Australian universities, same sort of period of time as you. And I can recall 15, 12 years ago, can't remember exactly which, starting to see data coming through of where the students at the university I worked at at the time once we, once we worked out they weren't in lectures, we tried to work out where they were. Mm-hmm. We quite often found found that they were on campus, but outside the lecture theater, watching it on watching it as a live lecture and talking with their student, their, their fellow classmates about it, or, or multitasking, mm-hmm. eating, and and mm-hmm. doing other things. So I, th- I think we have had, you know, it's not quilt data, but we've had access to information and data about this phenomena going on for a long yeah. time. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm absolutely sure that that we do need to invest more in the teaching and learning agenda. And I think a, a, a tipping point will come quite soon when that becomes urgent for us, because you talking about um, YouTube lectures and brilliant lectures from MIT. I'm reading a really interesting book at the moment by somebody called Paul LeBlanc, the president sure. Southern New Hampshire University. He, he, I, I haven't got all the way through it yet, but his book, Students First, so far has exposed to me two dominant thoughts that he has. One, one that's because I don't think it's all about the level of investment. I also think it's about a change in attitude and philosophy. I agree. Um, we probably need both. And and his first point about the the inappropriateness of the com- current philosophy is the concept of time, that we measure everything in a university education about something that's got to happen over three years. Yep. It's got to happen over three or four years. It's got to ha- happen over six or eight semesters. It's got to be four courses, units, programs, whichever you call them in your university per semester. They do need about three hours a, a week of study. Yep. Isn't, it, isn't it a coincidence that everything gets measured in three hours a week, four of them a, <laughs> a semester times six or eight for over yeah. three or four years? It's, it's, of course, ludicrous. It's a convenience for the provider rather than a need of the right. learner. Mm-hmm. Um, people see through that um, quickly. And, and he goes on in this book to talk about the 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 problem with the model being not only is it based upon time but it's it fails to be based upon what someone has learned through that process in terms of competency rather all that they've done is showed that they've they've been exposed for a period of time and they can be assessed on what they've what right. they have what they have experienced during that time not what they can do with that experience in what their qualifications leading to so I'm quite taken with some of the ideas in that book and the debate that and, and leading practices from around the world. And of course, the, the, the thing that, that connects with your ideas about MIT and YouTube is that the competency is measured. If, if we went to a competency model rather than a time model, we wouldn't just measure whether someone has done their time at the University of wherever in Australia, we would, we would measure competency by, by whether they've acquired it from YouTube learning resources, from a lecture from MIT, or 
Southern New Hampshire or, or Oxford, um, yeah. rather than just have they gained it from us. So I think a change in attitude about the inflexible way that we're providing learning programs yeah. and measuring content competency with extra investment would, would actually increase learner engagement and lead to a better model. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And just for for listeners' uh, benefit, yeah, Paul LeBlanc is 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 quite a well known figure in North America. He's been leading University of Southern New Hampshire, I think, for for a couple of decades at least, and he's really transformed it. It's an online largely online university and it's grown enormously. I think it's got something like 170,000 students now. So he's a real pioneer in this space, kind of like Michael Crow at Arizona State. And that whole idea that, you know, the whole idea of the semester model of uh, teaching and learning and the semester model of decision-making is is something that he's been very keen to sort of demonstrate that you can blow it, blow it up. But I don't think there's, I think, I think Southern New Hampshire is in a little bit of a different situation from our universities here Martin, in the sense that I don't know that it's got much of a research agenda. You can call a university a university in America without having all of the requirements for for excellence in research, like we have we have here, I believe. Um, but um, it's very much of a you know his book is students first, and it, everything is about trying to provide economic mobility for people who otherwise might not have had a chance to go to university. So it's a lot of non-traditional students do it, but um, more power to them. I mean, it's a remarkable story and I, and I would like to read that book as well. So pass it along when you're, uh, when you're done. We'll do. But, but yeah, I was going to just come back to the lecture thing. Something uh, Merlin Crossley wrote the other day in, um, in uh, online, in one of his columns, he's the, the DVC over at uh, UNSW. And he talked a lot about just the value of the lecture and how important that is. And, and, and saying it's, you know, we should have a, you know, we should have a smorgasbord of lots of different options and the lecture should be one of them, maybe not the only thing, but let's not throw it out because it serves a great purpose. And when I interviewed him, he talked a lot about his enthusiasm for the lecture and what he had seen experienced as a student and what he tries to do when he gives a lecture. And I think the word that we just need to associate with lecture is where the lecture takes place. It takes place in a lecture theater. Uh And a lecture theater is meant to be a place where a performance occurs, right? And we've all been to lectures that have been theatrical, where the person (laughs) up on the stage has put on a show. And when that person puts on a show, well, you really want to be there. It's a live show. If you've ever been to live theater, you know, it's a high wire act. It doesn't always go according to plan, but it's memorable and it can be spectacular. And it's certainly always impressive to watch someone try to pull it off, even if they don't quite pull it off. But if someone comes into a lecture theater and reads a sheaf of paper and some notes and scribbles something on the board and never looks up and makes no eye contact or otherwise is just no, you know, there is no real engagement with the audience. Well, that's not really theater at all. And so I think we really do need to distinguish between these things. And if we are going to have lectures, they need a theatrical component or you aren't going to have students attend and they're going to just sit at home and they're going to play them at 1.6 times speed. I don't know. Do you, do you agree with that? Well, I, I, I mean, I do agree with that. And I'm I'm actually um, triggered by your emphasis of the word theater to look to the parallels with what we're talking about with other forms of, of other areas of the economy, because I, I think we are on the verge of, of major systemic change. And it's, I think we have much that we can learn from other areas of systemic change. So I, I, I won't go to theoret- theatrical performance, but if we were to talk about television or music or, yeah. or mm-hmm. film, um, yeah. 
Other intellectual endeavors. <laughs> we, we, we have seen... <laughs> We have seen other areas in which um, content is made available to consumers, if I can use that language, where there's been quite a transformation in models of delivery, organizations delivering it, and how it can be experienced yeah. by, yeah. by customers or, or by learners. So the, the idea that we would watch a television program at a set time on yeah. a, a free-to-air seems such a historic concept now. And the idea that yeah. we would buy music by going, and I can still remember what an LP is or an yeah, album. Tell me about <laughs> it. I've, got, I've still got them. <laughs> yeah, no, I've got, I've got them. I love them. They scratch in all yeah. the, the yeah. great old places. But I hardly ever can be bothered to get up and put it on and listen to the other three tracks that go with the one that I really want to get to. Exactly. Rather than just flick through my Spotify plot platform yep, and, yep. and be offered things that I haven't heard before that are of yep. the genre that th are things that I like. Yeah. Now, I've, I've got a new book coming out with Michael Roseman of QUT called The New Learning Economy, Yeah. where we've really tried to pick some examples of out-of-sector new business models driven by technology like 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 Spotify in a personalization mm -hmm. sense, like Netflix with its uh, 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 gener generation of scale, like YouTube, like, like Amazon, like, um, yeah. like Google and others, and think, can't some of those models and some of those principles apply to how we will see learning in the future? So, look, yes, like, like you and like Mer Merlin, I, I can see great value in fantastic lecturers, and I can remember presentations live on a stage that have inspired me and really grabbed me. But I go and see those sorts of things very occasionally. That's not that often, of, right? I <laughs> spend a lot of time <laughs> listening to Spotify, watching Netflix, and, yeah. and, and choosing to listen to a podcast like yours when it suits me at my yeah. time in the car when I'm driving. So, so I agree. And I think that's a really interesting point. I would just like to, again, um, remind our listeners and all of us to think about this, that this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, the original time-shifting cap capability with television occurred in 1979 when the Betamax was released. People have been time-shifting television since the mid-1980s when the VCR became commonplace. Uh, we time shifted. It was a bit of a nuisance. You had to set up the, the machine to record. It was clunky. It wasn't digital. It was had a you know an analog or a little digital clock, and usually the parents couldn't figure it out, so the teenagers had to do it for them. But we've been time shifting for better part of forty years at least. Um, when 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 DVDs came along, it was easier, uh, and you know streaming services. Obviously, that just literally exploded the advertising model of broadcast and free-to-air TV, right? So um, for us to be surprised that students want to time shift lectures is kind of a bit rich, given that we have time shifted all of us, our lives for the last 40 years. I mean, I remember, you know, we all remember watching, you know, renting movies and watching it when you wanted to. That was, you know, and, 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 the, and, the, tele and the movie industry was, you know, apoplectic about this, destroying people's um, willingness to go to the theater. What it did was it made them rethink why we need we need to deliver stuff that people want to see in a theatrical way. Um, that was easier done when people still had crummy little cathode ray tube televisions. Now we all have these beautiful big screens at home. So TV, the, the, the movie theaters have to keep upping their game. But um, I think universities have been quite protected in many ways for, for through all of this. And now there's a little bit of a pent up 
kind of uh, situation and the, the pandemic really exacerbated and I think really shown a very bright light on on the, 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 the sort of sector's sort of reluctance to embrace some of these things. One thing I was just going to uh, thought I might draw our attention to um, move along a little bit here, Martin, is is some of the difference between how our public and private providers, public universities and, and, and private institutions have performed in terms of their student experience. It's it's really quite remarkable, isn't it, where you sort of see when you look at them spread across a, a um, you know, the sort of gradations of, of their of the overall student experience, um, the, you know, Within the public sector, it seems like those really big research-intensive universities may be overrepresented at one side, and some of the smaller private universities at the other. And then when you look at the public versus private, um, a similar discrepancy. What, what, what do you make of that? Yeah, no, it's um, there's given given how much our different providers of higher education, certainly in Australia, have so many similarities. And, uh, and the culture of the sector and the regulation of the sector has a lot to do with that. It's also intriguing for, for me, and I think for many, to see how different that their approaches have been with trying to, to innovate in this, in this sort of space and, and the successes that they've had or otherwise. And I think that gets amplified if you look, as we have in this conversation, beyond the shores of Australia at innovators in Europe, Asia, and, and North America in particular. I mean, um, I referred to one book that I've just got coming out with Michael Roseman on the new learning economy. I've got another book on the new leadership agenda, which comes from 50 conversations I've had with leaders of our universities across Australia and around the world in the last couple of years. One of them was you, Jack, and you're... Uh, yeah, <laughs> I remember it well. <laughs> I do too. And, and I also remember being really struck by how the difference between edtech companies like your own and the other people from the edtech sector and some universities who'd really embraced partnership with the edtech sector in a much more strategic way i mean i think the edtech sector is being used in lots of ways to outsource to better providers the the, the challenge of, of student engagement and learner engagement and there's lots of evidence of success for institutions and their learners in doing that. But I think the, the big difference is in how some of them have been much more strategic, long, long, the long-term view about how to do that and how engaged they've been and focused on the student pro process. I mean, you mentioned Michael Crow and Arizona State University there a little bit earlier when we were talking about Paul LeBlanc. I think the way that ASU, through its alliance with GSV, the Global Silicon yep. Valley's Valley Group, yep. has built an edtech system over a sustained period of 13 years to build a, extraordinary yeah. learning platforms. We, we don't have, I think, any uh, Australian universities that have taken that same strategic approach. And yeah. one right. of my most recent conversations coming into that series was with Ian Dunn, the, the provost yeah. of Coventry University, sure. across them, the way that they are taking a mature view of CRM technology and mm -hmm. an ecosystem of ed tech to connect with that. So public-private, I, I, I think private, private companies that have embraced technology and focused on learning experience are quite broadly achieving much better results. I think public universities have the scope and the possibility to connect with that, and some of it, some of them are doing it really well, 
and some of them are, are really not making it a priority. And there's an opportunity for many more to do this better, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think one of the things Michael Crow has acknowledged there is, is this idea of comparative advantage. It's sort of, you learn it in macroeconomics 101, but that um, even if even if an organization, and the universities can be a very large organization like they are here, can potentially do everything itself or do everything better than some other organization, it should still focus on the things it does best. And it should probably trade or partner to do things that it isn't going to do best. And in the case of these sort of digital initiatives, solving problems that aren't intrinsic to the, you know, the traditional analog model of the university and just are going to be complicated and and expensive to build and maintain from a technological perspective, it makes so much sense to, uh, you know, to partner and to use those, 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 uh, you know, technologists that are, that are focused fully on solving a component of this digital problem that is only getting more complex. Um, I was going to ask though, you know, one thing we haven't talked too much about, but um, is clearly something universities love to talk about is uh, not so much the quilt rankings or data, but the uh, other many, many other myriad university rankings, which um, tend to shine a very, very positive glow, indeed glowing spotlight on, on our sector. And, and they tend to, I think we probably agree, tend to focus more on the research side and the reputational side of, uh, of, of the sector. Um, and I'm just wondering if you get maybe reflect on that a little bit, but also comment on, on where, you know, incentives and behaviors might be reflected in, you know, in these rankings and in universities priorities and trying to optimize their outcomes in these rankings. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really, really good point, Jack. And um, I, there is a proliferation of um, rankings now, aren't there? We've just <laughs> seen our, our, our second sustainability ranking emerge from the right. rankings industry that seems to be chugging along at great at great speed and at fast mm-hmm. rates of growth globally. They, 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 of course, thrive on the ability to make evidence-based um assessments across international boundaries and i think the 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 advantage for research is that that is more internationally comparable in terms of some of the metrics of inputs and outputs um teaching and learning i i i think we should recognize we've talked about quilt data and moved on from it but the initiative in establishing an independent database of quilt data yeah objectively has measured and compared and published data on the student experience and learner engagement across the whole nation is fantastic. It's great that it exists. There are similar things in the UK and the US and other countries around the world, but you can't compare between them because of the systems for learning and teaching are too too different. That is true that you can't quite compare, but I would just say specifically or at the UK, I think the office for students is who runs the, the, um, the the equivalent study, the, 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 the student, um, national student survey i think it's called in the uk and um and i do think there is a little bit of a difference between how that is conducted and how this one is managed because this one is you know funded by the government just like theirs is but um, rather than there being a sort of autonomous government office that's clearly specifically in support of students this is run through a uh, a group that's sort of at the at uh, anu and 
um, when you do look at it, when you actually read and read the the text and look at how the data is presented, it's 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 certainly there's a little bit of a lens that's been put on it. I would I would suggest that that is not quite the students first lens that I think the the yeah. office for students puts on their data. Well, I I, um, I bow to your better understanding of the details and the, what's under the hood on these things. I think coming back to your earlier question is, are the incentives and behaviours and the priorities of universities focused on this? I'd have to say I don't think enough. I think um, I think they've become so focused on, on research prowess because of its um, ability to raise their position in the rankings. And I think I think we're approaching a point where that that has to change. If if as you mm -hmm. say, less than the cruel data is showing us that less than fifty percent of our students are feeling engaged with their learning, that that's a, a situation ripe for alternative provision, whether it's yeah. global competitors, private providers, and edtech companies. And I think there's a, enough evidence that I'm seeing of what the data looks like for demand for teaching and learning in degrees in universities around the globe and close to home that people need to be can it needs to become people's priority yeah. i mean so, some of the data out of the us i'm sure you've got your eye on it on student numbers reducing and moving more to online providers i think a lot of the talk in australia at the moment is of a softening of domestic demand yes and i'm sure most of us would like to think and believe this is a cyclical variation tied to high employment rates temporary right I hope that I hope it's I hope enough of it is down to that phenomenon right. that we'll all come back. Who who knows whether right. we aren't seeing the same sort of thing that's happening in the US of right. a questioning of the value of this big block of time of three or four years of study in a right. yeah. is a it form worth of it? delivery that isn't engaging us. Well, we make it relatively affordable for domestic students in Australia. The US makes it almost prohibitively expensive and so there's a there's a there's a much sharper reason for people to really question that in the u.s we have three-year degrees and we really do have a, a, a pretty good loan scheme with the hex help debt yeah but, well let's let's hope that that might soften the blow yeah. but one of the places where i think universities are being a, a little bit surprised is that all those international students who really underpin the economics of our biggest universities um, a lot of them you know who ended up they you know I think we, we were initially surprised that they stayed enrolled and studied online, but now we're wondering, are they going to come back? Or, and some many of them are saying, we want to just finish our degree online. And if that's the case, um, what, where does that leave the international student market after the pandemic? Yeah, I, I think what you're, what you're putting a, shining a light on there is that the questions of whether the size of the market will change is one thing. But the question of whether the nature of the market and the demand for learning has also or instead is changing even greater is one that I think needs a, a lot of focus and means that our responses to rebuilding learner engagement will need to reflect whatever changes in the size and the nature of the market. And I'm sure technology, I'm sure the sort of things that entertainment and music mm. and film have been through more than 20 years ago are some of the phenomena that yeah. are, we, we must learn from and we have the opportunity to learn from in yeah. um, reimagining higher education in Australia and, and being a really strong competitive provider and doing the right things for students who we put first. I've got one last question for you, Martin. Um, we've been through this 
traumatic global event. It's it's definitely shown a light on all these areas that the the sector is you know where 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 it's doing okay, but clearly where it can do better as well. Um, what's your take on universities as 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 a sector in Australia and their capability to make decisions rapidly enough to respond to these circumstances? Yeah, well, again, one of the um, one of the triumphs of 2020 and through 2021-22, I think, Jane Denholder is right. It's the staff that were the heroes of the hour and our mm -hmm. students and all that they've been through. And there really is gold at the base of the pyramid, as she says. I think we also have to pay tribute to how institutions and their leadership did keep business continuity with quick decisions at the time and, for goodness sake, repeated change decisions. So, look, on, but on all of those counts, I think we've shown that we have the capability to change mm -hmm. and to evolve and to, and to take bold decisions. But we're not in those times now. We're coming through the other side of that. We're in right. catch-up mode. We're now looking at what the models might be for the future. And that same capacity to, to be visionary and to be clear in decision-making and to do it in partnership with other people, I think is the priority right now mm -hmm. for all of our institutions moving forward. There was a lovely OECD report. Um, sorry, it's not an OECD report. It's a UNESCO report on yep. higher education that came out earlier this year. And it talked about one of the biggest risks for universities globally is their inability to take risks. Yeah, interesting. And I think that's really the time that we've got to now that one of the biggest challenges for universities right now if they're really going to recognize that learner engagement and student experience is is of primary concern is the decisions that they're going to put in place and the partnerships they're but they're going to build and the actions that they're going to promote to really be in a good position for the medium term and the innovation that's in front of us and the the university that masters that through a new strategy in, in partnership with other organizations, including ed tech providers, will, will, I think, have a great opportunity to really crack this and be in a significant position of advantage in the future. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And I just really, really hope that as we, as we do come out of the pandemic, that the, you know, the, the, the way that the pandemic forced the sector to, 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 to move quickly and to think on its feet, that, that, we, that, that it doesn't lose that and think that, 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 that those skills aren't needed now that we're no longer in this Sort of crisis moment because I do think that actually the pandemic has has shifted student expectations and and we're seeing it in the data and there's there's a there's a long game to be played here which is that that we need we need to see our institutions continue to you know keep their foot on the accelerator of of you know embracing change and and trying to so solve these problems in new ways because that's what the times demand. And, you know, there's no going back to uh, 2019, at least that's my, my view. Certainly mine too, Jack. And look, it's great to have a podcast like yours and the things that we've <laughs> been trying to do with help from people like you in HeadX over the last two or three years to try and facilitate the conversation that can allow people to be on that journey. I, I think we need to have more conversations like this and more actions that they generate about taking risks and pursuing innovation to, to, to do what 
would really put our students first and, and to safeguard the, the future of our universities and the health of the sector. Well, thank you so much for your time, Martin. It has been such a pleasure. Great to be, great to be with you, Jack. Thanks for having me on. Visit studiosity.com slash students first for the next Students First Symposium, an open forum for faculty, staff, and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education. Visit studiosity.com slash students first.